Thank you, Bev. Let's have a round of applause for Bev. She did a great job. Thank you, Bev. Okay, <coughs> we live in a time when so many people think that they are entitled. We are all we are all well aware of that fact. We believe that we have that what we have is really ours. Too many of us believe that if we're poor, we deserve assistance. If we're rich, we deserve a tax break. If we're workers, we deserve better fringe benefits. If we own a business that's failing, we deserve a bailout. And if we're a special interest group, we deserve special treatment. And the list goes on, doesn't it? The Pharisees, okay, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, thought they too were entitled. They had the strange idea that money was deserved. Money was a sign that they were blessed by God, and poverty was a result of God's curse. Then Jesus came along and challenged that whole notion. All of us, he said, are managers of what we have been given by God. And from what God has given us, we are to bless others, to bring life, to bring health, and hope, and joy. The story that we're going to look at today is the second parable of Jesus that is found in the 16th chapter of Luke. And it actually builds off the story of the dishonest manager in the first part of this chapter. The theme is similar. It involves the wise use of money, but to be more specific, it is a story that focuses on the whole question of stewardship versus entitlement. The parable in chapter 16, uh, verses 1 through 13, ended with this important lesson. If you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibility. And if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? And if you are not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? Remember this, it says, No one can serve two masters, for you, you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. But before Jesus tells us the second parable, Luke records a few transition verses that set up the reason for Jesus' teaching about the wise use of our resources. Look, let's look at verses uh, 14 and 15. The Pharisees, who dearly loved their money, heard all this and scoffed at him. Then he said to them, Jesus was talking, you like to appear righteous in public, but God knows your hearts. What this world honors is detestable in the sight of God. Those are some strong words. Here Jesus is accusing his opponents of playing to the wrong audience and living according to the wrong standards or rules. In verses 16 through 18, he accuses these religious leaders who prided themselves in being the keepers of the law as actually being the ones who were corrupting the law. That's too bad, but listen to what Jesus says. Until John the Baptist, the law of Moses and the message of the prophets were your guides. But now the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone is eager to get in. But that doesn't mean that the law has lost its force. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the smallest point of God's law to be overturned. Jesus refers to the fact that the Old Testament period of time in which the law was central ended with John the Baptist. And his appearance, that's Jesus' appearance on earth, 
inaugurated a new age, a new dispensation. And this new dispensation, Jesus says, is welcomed by many. But the coming of the new dispensation did not do away with everything that had to do with the old. The Old Testament law did not end with the coming of Christ. And Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, he did not come to abolish the law, but what? To fulfill the law. The, the two commandments which Jesus taught, to love God and love your neighbor, simply summed up all of the law and the prophets. The Pharisees provided themselves in pre- preserving Old Testament law. They loved the law, and they sought to preserve it, or so they thought. But the exact opposite was the case. Jesus, like the Pharisees, was also committed to preserving of the law and the prophets. But then he took it a step further. The Pharisees focused on the outward aspects of religion, missing the fact that the Old Testament prophets persistently called Israel's attention to the heart issues of the law. God didn't want just outward conformity to a bunch of laws. He wanted inward conformity to the will of God. Now, in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, found in verses 19 through 31, bear in mind that Jesus is not condemning rich people while suggesting that the poor people will go to heaven. Jesus doesn't question how the rich man got his money or that he has it. The rich man isn't even necessarily a bad person. He may have been a deeply caring person or even a generous donor to charitable causes. But whatever else he was, in this story, he is blind to the person who is in need right in front of his doorstep. He is condemned for his casual indifference to the person who is right in front of him. So let's read the story. Jesus said, There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. He was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried, and his soul went to the place of the dead. There, in torment, he saw Abraham for the, in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted, and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted, and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. Then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home. For I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them, your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. 
And what did Abraham say? Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen even if someone rises from the dead. Verse 19 begins almost identically with verse 1 of this chapter. There was a certain rich man. The rich man in Jesus' story had it made by all worldly standards. He was wealthy, enjoyed all the benefits of his wealth. He was magnificently dressed. You get the impression that his wardrobe was filled with expensive garments. He ate well, and he lived happily. Life was good to this man. From all appearances, this man, the Pharisees would have supposed, was a righteous man. Surely he would go to heaven when he died, from all appearances. Lazarus was the exact opposite. He was a poor man, a beggar, whose name means the one God helps. He was placed by the angels, excuse me, he was placed by the gate of the rich man's house. His clothing is not described, but we can well imagine how bad it was. His food was whatever scraps he might get from the rich man's garbage, fighting off the dogs for food. He had sores that the dogs licked. He was precisely the kind of person that the Pharisees would brand a sinner, a man who, in their minds, was worthy of hell. These two men lived in close proximity to each other. Lazarus was close was likely close enough to this rich man's living quarters that he could see the entourage of people coming and going. Lazarus could hear the laughter. He could smell the aroma of the sumptuous meals being prepared in the kitchen. He knew what he was missing. And if Lazarus was painfully aware of the bounty and blessings of the rich man, but evidently not a share in them, so too the rich man had to have been aware of the pathetic plight of Lazarus. He would have had to walk past Lazarus every time he left or entered his house. This means that he would have had to have consciously chosen to ignore Lazarus's needs. The rich man used his wealth to indulge himself, but not to minister to the needy. This was a clear violation of the Old Testament standard of righteousness. Based upon appearances alone, we can see how the Pharisees would have judged these two men. They would have justified the rich man and condemned Lazarus. But the fate of these two men after their deaths shows that our human judgment can be wrong. Their destiny after death illustrates Jesus' indictment against the Pharisees. Namely, that they sought to be justified in the eyes of other people according to appearances, rather than before God, based upon what? Based upon their heart. It was only after both men died that God's judgment was evident. Here, the roles of the two men are almost exactly reversed. Now, it is the rich man who is in torment, and Lazarus who is blessed. The change occurred at their death. On earth, we imagine that the rich man had a very elaborate funeral and was buried in a dignified grave. Can you imagine what Lazarus happened to his body? Lazarus' funeral, on the other hand, would have been very basic. It's even possible that his body may have been cast into a garbage heap. But from a heavenly viewpoint, it was decidedly different. We are told that the soul of Lazarus was escorted to Abraham's bosom. 
of the rich man, we are simply told that he died and was buried. Lazarus is not said to be in the presence of God, but in the bosom of Abraham. We must remember that this parable is told to an Israelite audience with an Old Testament point of view. In Old Testament times, it was believed that there was a kind of holding place for the souls of those who died. This holding place had two separate compartments. One was reserved for the righteous, the other for the unrighteous. Each compartment has eternal counterpart. Above the righteous, there was heaven, while the place of the wicked was a prototype of hell. The rich man and Lazarus are, therefore, each in their own place. The place of Lazarus' bliss was called Abraham's bosom. From his place of torment, the rich man addresses Abraham as Father Abraham. I can almost see the faces of the Pharisees flinch as Jesus spoke the words, Father Abraham. For this rich man addressed Abraham as his father, and Abraham called him his child. The Pharisees believed, you see, that all one needed in order to get into the kingdom of God was a birth certificate which proved that they were a physical descendant of Abraham. But here's a rich man, an offspring of Abraham. Where is he? In hell. What a striking way to remind the Jews that being a physical descendant of Abraham was not a guarantee of one's salvation. The place of bliss was Abraham's bosom. I believe that we may find a clue to the meaning of this expression in Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, which says, And I tell you this, that many Gentiles will come from all over the world, from east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. That's in Matthew chapter 8, uh, verse 11 on the screen. Lazarus is pictured as reclining in Abraham's bosom. The occasion when a man would lean on the bosom or breast of another man was at the meal table, as John did with our Lord in John chapter 13. Thus, it may well be that Lazarus is being portrayed as reclining at a banquet meal with Abraham. Notice this. The circumstances of rich man and Lazarus are almost exactly reversed after death. The rich man who lived in luxury now lived in agony. He was distant from Abraham's bosom, but was aware of what was taking place there. Lazarus, who had suffered greatly in his life, was now in bliss. While he had struggled in order to get the scraps from the rich man's table, now he reclined at Abraham's table, sitting next to him. While it was formerly Lazarus who looked upon the bounty of the rich man but did not share in it, now it's the rich man who views Lazarus in bounty and blessing. It would seem that the rich man's hell is something like solitary confinement in a prison. There may be others there with you, but you are hardly aware of them, nor is there any real fellowship. What you are aware of is the happiness of the righteous. It is as though hell has a one-way picture window, and each resident of hell is given a pair of binoculars. The wicked are able to see the joy and bliss of the righteous. This is hard, but it appears that the righteous are unaware of the suffering of the wicked. In other words, the wicked can see out, 
but the righteous cannot see the end. Double torture. It would be easy to think that the bulk of the parable might be devoted to a description of heaven and hell or the joy of Lazarus and the agony of rich man, but instead, the larger portion of the parable is devoted to to two requests which are made by the rich man. Before we look more closely at these requests, I want you to take note of several observations. One, first, both his requests were denied. Two, the first request of the rich man had to do with his personal comfort, while the second was for the eternal well-being of his immediate family. Remember, his five brothers. Third, both of his requests are that Abraham send Lazarus to do something. It would seem that the rich man still looks down upon Lazarus, viewing him as a kind of servant and not as an equal. The rich man's first request was the result of his torment, his suffering. The flames were causing him great discomfort. He pleads for mercy, asking that Lazarus be sent to him with the smallest quantity of water to cool his tongue. His petition to Abraham was denied based on two factors. First, the rich man's fate was a just one. He had gotten what he deserved. He had his good things in life. Now justice demanded that he get what he deserved. His suffering was a just penalty. Justice would not allow Abraham to diminish his suffering. Second, hell and heaven are divided with no access between the two. There was, Abraham said, a great fixed chasm, a wide open place, located between the two places. The wicked could not cross over to the place of blessing, and the righteous could not, to show mercy, such as to take water to the suffering, cross over to the place of the wicked. Thus, the rich man's petition must be denied. Hell is the destiny of some, with the choice of entering it, being made during our lifetime. The rich man's second request still involves the service of Lazarus, but this time he does not request that Lazarus ease his suffering, but that Lazarus go to his five brothers to warn them not to come to this place. The rich man now understands that the choices people make must be made before death and that their decisions remain after their death. Abraham responded negatively to the second request as well as to the first. There was no need for someone to be sent from the grave to warn the lost. Moses and the prophets served this purpose well. Let the lost listen to the Old Testament revelation. That should serve as a sufficient warning. The rich man protested, however. He insisted that people may not read or listen to the Old Testament scriptures, but they could not ignore the message of someone who had returned from death. In other words, signs and wonders could do more than the word of God. This is a, but a continuation of the request made at other times in Jesus' ministry that he, Jesus, prove himself by performing some miracle as a proof of his person and his power. Abraham's answer was short and pointed. He said that if his brothers refused to listen to Moses and the prophets, they would not be convinced by a spectacular appearance from the grave. There's a very significant principle underlying this answer. Listen to this. Our failure, 
failure to believe is not due to any lack of evidence, but due to a closed heart, determined to disbelieve any amount of evidence. The problem, to put it differently, was not a lack of external evidence, appearances, but a willful rebellion of the heart against God. The hearts of this man and his five brothers were unbelieving. Such unbelief is not solved by a large amount of evidence, but only by a change in the heart. Once again, the outward appearances are not the issue. What is the issue? The heart is the issue. Jesus would soon be crucified and he would soon rise from the dead. That empty tomb in Jerusalem did not result in a host of conversions, for it was not his physical appearances which convinced anyone. People were changed when their heart was changed. If people were to believe in Christ for salvation, they would have to believe in the Christ of which the Old Testament scriptures foretold, as well as God in human flesh, the person of Jesus himself. The Pharisees rejected Jesus for two, key, for two key reasons. First, they sought to win the approval of people based on outward appearances rather than God's approval, which is based on what is in our heart. Second, in so doing, they had rejected the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets, exchanging God's standard of righteousness for a human standard. It's not good. The story of the rich man and Lazarus dramatically illustrates these two errors. Based on appearances, it would seem that the rich man would be pronounced righteous and enter into God's kingdom, and Lazarus would be rejected and condemned. The outcome after these two men died was just the reverse. Appearances, Jesus is illustrating, are deceptive. People are probably thought People probably thought very highly of the rich man, but God rejected him. People tended to despise a man like Lazarus, a poor beggar, but what did God do? God justified him. So what then was the basis of the rejection of the rich man and the justification of Lazarus? The answer lies in the fact that God's values are not the same as the world's values. Write this down in the dust on your dashboard. God's values are not the same as the world's values. The values of the kingdom are so often just the reverse of what, of what humans tend to think. The rich man was not condemned. <laughs> Is that a good sign or a bad sign? He's throwing a shoe at me. The rich man was not condemned because he was rich any more than the poor man was justified for being poor. These outward conditions, riches and poverty, were fundamentally irrelevant to, e to the eternal destiny of these two men. A godly rich man would have used his wealth differently, but it was not his works that would have saved him. The real basis for justification or condemnation is to be found in the context of the rich man's concern for his lost brothers and sisters. The issue was not whether these men were rich or poor, but whether or not they believed the scriptures. It is neither riches nor poverty which determines our destiny. Our destiny is determined by belief or unbelief. So, 
The last portion of the parable illustrates the second charge of our Lord against the Pharisees. And that is that they have exchanged the eternal, unchanging standards of the law and the prophets for the ever-changing standards of what their society talks about. The Pharisees, who saw themselves as the custodians, the guardians of the law, were, were really its corruptors. And in so doing, they sealed their own fate. While they may appear to, to be righteous on the outside, while other people may have considered them to be righteous, their fate would be the same as a rich man unless they believed and repented. Belief and repentance was what the Old Testament revelation was intended to produce. These scriptures were not given to provide an external standard of righteousness which people, if they worked hard enough, could achieve. The scriptures were given to convince all people that we are sinners, miserably and hopelessly lost. And these same scriptures provided a temporary means of escape, the sacrificial system. Sins could be put off for a time by performing a sacrifice. But these scriptures spoke of an ultimate salvation which God would accomplish based on a new covenant and upon the sacrificial death of Messiah who would bear the penalty for our sins and on the basis of whose righteousness, listen to this, we could be declared righteous as well. Listen to St. Paul's summation of all this that's found in Romans chapter 3. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one could ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. Note this. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Jesus Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life shedding his blood. I say that again. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in past times, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in the present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just. And he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Wow. What an incentive for those who have not yet committed their life lies over to Jesus Christ. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus seems to teach us a couple of important lessons. First, hell should be a place of great anxiety to those who are far away from Christ. Even though it seems fun to joke about it, Hell is a real place. It comes after death, and it is a certainty. 
Hell is the place which justice requires, for it is there and there only that the evils of life are made right. I often hear people protesting against hell, insisting that a loving God cannot send anyone to such a place, but God is also a just God. He cannot overlook evil. The love of God sent Jesus to the cross of Calvary to bear God's wrath on sin. And to those who reject the love of God in Christ, there will be an eternal separation from God. Hell is that place where people suffer torment. That torment seems to include physical pain, the heat of the flames in our parable, as well as the mental anguish resulting from seeing the joy of heaven, but being removed from it. And the anguish of worrying about loved ones still living who will share the same fate if they don't believe. Hell is a place of irreversible fate. The parable indicates that there is no passage between, no passage possible between heaven and hell. Hell is a place to which many go, thinking that they are going to heaven. The Bible teaches that there was a way which seems right to a man, but it ends, but its ends are the ways of death. The self-righteous Pharisees never dreamed that they would populate hell. Hell is that place to which people go because their hearts are not right before God and who do not believe the scriptures, who have not sought forgiveness for their sin or accepted God's salvation through Jesus. There is certainly a strong message in this parable to those who may feel religious but who are not really committed followers of Jesus Christ. Such was the case of the Pharisee. As Jesus said, we cannot serve two masters. When God is our master, money becomes a means of serving him. But when our God is money, God becomes the means of making money, of making us prosperous. The second important lesson is there are many ways in which we falsely measure spirituality by external standards and appearances by a person's wealth or poverty, by whether or not we have a particular spiritual gift, by the way our children turn out, or by the number of hours a person spends at the church or in church-related activities. But this error of externalism is serious. God judges us not by what is seen on the outside, but again, by what is in our hearts. And the third important lesson is if we have the resources to help those who are in need and choose not to, we will be judged. Rich or poor, we are to be good stewards of that which has been entrusted to us. We have What we have is not ours. It's loaned to us for a time. Nobody really owns anything. One day this life will end for all of us. Are we planning for that time? Are we using what we have to bless others? May the good news of Jesus be seen in us by the way we care for those the poor at our doors. Let's bow together for prayer. God, too often we close our eyes to the great needs around the world. We don't often see with the eyes of the very poor because we live in relative luxury, even though there are some who have much more than we do. We spend more in a day on our comfort than some in our world have to buy daily bread. Forgive our lack of compassion for those in need around us. 
Father, help us to pay attention to your word today that we may live morally. Help us to listen to the call of Jesus and the prophets to seek justice for all. Help us to hear the good news of the risen Christ that eternal life is the treasure that all of us can receive if we trust in your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.